This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Captain Andrew. Whoa. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Ensign. You're the Ensign. I'm the Ensign? Yeah. What is an Ensign? It's the lowest that's uh, not like a student at Starfleet Academy. Oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, you always have to do all the bad stuff. I everyone I... makes fun of you sometimes. What are the different officers that I could aspire to be? You could be a lieutenant, you could be a lieutenant commander, you could be a commander, or a captain, or an admiral. And then I think there are a couple layers of admiral above that, but admirals are almost exclusively evil, so you don't want to be one of those. Captain is captain is the highest desirable rank. Uh, this is one of our bonus episodes. It's good to know I have a lot to aspire to, Andrew. Oh, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. You got some room to move up. Our bonus episode for the month maybe of... Sometime, maybe sometime in season six. I'll promote you. <laughs> in the month of June. Uh, so we are recording with some of our Patreon supporters uh, watching us live. Um, Patreon.com. For more information on that. Thanks to Savannah, who noted that, uh, yes, I am wearing a red shirt. For this podcast, I didn't not smart. plan that. We'll see if I make it to the end. Um, we are, of course, Andrew, talking about what book? We're talking about Killing Time, a Star Trek novel first by edition. Della Van Heiss. Yeah, Della Van Specifically Heiss. the first edition before... I mean, I don't know if you looked into the urban legend around why the first edition got pulled and then reissued. I've d- I've all, done some research. Like yeah, how true it is. The word on the street is that Gene Roddenberry saw all the uh, very homoerotic Kirk Spock slash fic stuff in this book and got really upset and demanded that it be pulled and revised. There's a count- I don't know that there's, there's a counter narrative any- to that. Yeah, I don't know that we have a historical record of that actually happening. Yeah. Um, so we will talk about that. Um, we're recording this episode on a pretty profoundly awful day. Um, and a it's, bad day. it's an awful one that's kind of harder to meet because of the parade of awful ones that have preceded it. Uh, mm. we're going to just go ahead with our scheduled chat about a fun book, about a fun subject. Uh, and our hope is that some goofs can be restorative, live long and prosper and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and the show is going to be making some contributions to local abortion funds here in the U.S. We'll share out links to those. And we encourage folks to do the same if they have the resources. Uh, and we just wanted to say that, but we also wanted to create space for folks to, you know, relax and uh, find something funny for a second or like an hour, maybe. Yeah, for a second. So, um, yeah. Wait, Andrew. What? What are you drinking, bud? Oh, Romulan, Romulan ale. What are it's wait. it's illegal in this it's illegal in this in this sector, but I have a guy. Uh, what <laughs> is in Romulan ale? Um, uh, mostly blue raspberry Mad Dog Twenty Twenty. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you show mm. the folks at home a little bit? Romulan, Romulan ale. Mm. Oh my god. Mm, contraband. Yo. Okay. Well, mm. <laughs> uh, I'm well. I am drinking a beer called Space Station Middle Finger, which kind of combines oh, okay. one of your my... one of your Terran beers. <laughs> yes, Terran brew, um, and it combines my two moods today. Uh, so that's that. Um, Space and flipping somebody the bird. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Andrew flipping, flipping somebody the bird of prey, if you will. Yes, this, we have that's, a, never, that's a Klingon joke. <laughs> Jesus, we have never really talked about Star Trek on Overdue, a podcast about the books. You I mean read where one person reads a book and tells the other person about it? We're breaking the rules. It's a bonus episode. We both read the book. Go mm-hmm. ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead about just Star about Trek? Star Trek. Like we've never talked about it. Real, it's come up, mm-hmm. but ne- we've never devoted an, an episode. To it. No, I mean, Star Trek is one of the, along with Pokemon, I think, it's one yeah. of the franchises that I have truly Malcolm Gladwell welled and <laughs> am an expert 10, on. 10,000 hours? Yeah, okay. 10,000 hours. <laughs> um, and yeah, so Star Trek originally created uh, in the 1960s by Gene Roddenberry, a man who is credited as being a a visionary with a very optimistic vision of the future. Uh-huh. Also, just a horny guy, just a super <laughs> horny dude. <laughs> okay, sure. Whose vision of the 23rd century from the late 1960s was, I mean, not not a frat house in space sometimes. Yeah, you get you get you get bits of that in this book. Okay, um, but created the original uh, Star Trek show, which starred uh, William Shatner, of course, as Cap- Captain Kirk, uh, Leonard Nimoy as Mister Spock, an alien character with pointy ears, uh-huh. and DeForest Kelly as uh, Doctor McCoy, among among many other great yeah. performers. Yeah. Sure, um, and that show, it was. I'm not going to get all the way into it. It's really like look up uh, Lucille Ball's. Uh, involvement and getting it like picked up and giving it a second chance after it got a, it did a really bad boring pilot that, <laughs> that they, they went back and redid but um yeah if you want to talk about women in sci-fi i mean lucille ball's up there okay uh, it ran for three seasons was never super pop i mean it developed a following but it was never super popular it was in danger of being canceled at the end of its second season it got a third season where they gave it almost no money and then it got canceled after that. And then in the 70s, the show was mostly like a word of mouth sort of rerun driven training phenomenon. Yeah. And and like episodes and reruns got a steady following. They did in a couple years of an animated show with most of the original Whoa. cast. I don't think uh, I knew that. Reprising their voices. It's a weird one. That's, <laughs> that's the one Star Trek show I've not watched all of because I can't get all the way into it. Okay. Um. And then starting in the 80s, after Star Wars happens, Paramount is like, well, what's a space-based property that we have access to that we can make a movie out of? Sure. And that launches the first Star Trek movie. Bad reviews, very expensive, pretty boring. <laughs> uh, it's, it was called Star Trek The Motion Picture. The joke at the time was to call it Star Trek The Motionless Picture because no! nothing happened in it. <laughs> Uh, they gave it one more shot with this little movie called Star Trek Wrath of Khan, which they filmed for almost nothing and was this ridiculous smash hit success I, is like I, legitimately one of my favorite movies in the whole world. I and, watched and enjoyed that movie with you mm-hmm. for the first time recently. And I mm-hmm. honestly, like I enjoyed it. Yeah. 
kind of blown away that it was like a huge success, though. Like, I think it's a good movie. I think it is. It was a success partially because people, I think, were going in with kind of low expectations based on how the first. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, yeah, very successful. It spawned the rest of the movie franchise, which then turned into the Next Generation in the late '80s, which turned into like three other shows, and uh, just kind of—I don't need to do the whole other thing from there. No. But it just becomes—it goes from this barely popular canceled TV show in the '60s to like one of the biggest like established franchises. Sure, I think there are five Star Trek shows currently running, and like. Two or three of them are pretty good. So Yeah, you like the cartoon one and you like the new one, right? <laughs> yes, Strange okay. New Worlds Whips and um, everybody should watch so it. So where are we? So this book is published. We'll get into uh, Della Van Heist in a second. Um, this book was published in 1985. What is going on? Where are we in Star Trek in 1985-ish? So, you might not know the exact timeline, but I'm sure you is, have an so, idea. Uh, this is pre-Next Generation, but after the movie franchise has sort of been established. And if you look, my if you look in the front of the book, they have the list of all the Star Trek novels that have been published up to that point, and you'll see novelizations of Star Trek's one through three. Those are the movies. Oh yes, um, okay. This is so book twenty four in that run. Yeah, from and so we're we're a couple years before Star Trek Four, which is the one where they have to go back in time to San Francisco and save the whales. Okay, uh, to to d- d- deter an evil like whale probe <laughs> that's destroying Earth. Free and Willy that the prequel. One, that one was the the one that did so well that it got next generation made after it. So we're, we're at a point where the franchise has been sort of reestablished, but it's not, it's still, you know, the original cast is the only one that's ever existed. Ah, okay. The, the universe of star Trek is still like pretty narrow, all things considered. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was growing up. Um, my dad watched a lot of star Trek, the next generation. And so like, I knew it was on, I knew it existed. Mm hmm. I was more of a Star Wars kid, and I don't know how That's and fine. when that happened. I think um, history's proven me right. Well, uh, <laughs> eh. well, you know, what was that show with the with the? I've asked this on air recently. I think the show with the theme song that otherwise the show is, with the theme song the, was it Enterprise? Is that the oh, bad Enterprise. one? Enterprise. Yeah, no, that's. The, I mean, that's the worst one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just saying, there have been bad Star Treks. Anyway. Uh, there, have been, there have been bad Star Trek. I'm just saying the ratio is, yeah, I think a little better on my side of the fence. Well, you you get like full twenty something episode seasons on Star Trek. It works in its mm-hmm. favor anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting the point you make about there being by the time of this book, there's just the TOS cast. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is not my experience of Star Trek at all because by the time I knew it existed, it was like, it's a multi-generational thing. There's a next generation that has its own cast of characters. <laughs> they do things. And it's like referencing this older show. It To me, because this book and because Van Heist comes out of a strong fan fiction community for the original series, it's she just does, yeah. interesting... To think about the property being like, well, it's just the people on Kirk's Enterprise. Like that's mm-hmm. just an interesting thing for me to to wrap my mind around. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you have opinions on like favorite Star Trek casts of characters, and if we have time to talk about that. But 
I mean, I think I, I don't want to bore everybody. I think I've <laughs> talked a lot already. But I mean, okay. Deep Space Nine is is acclaimed as like this spinoff of the next generation that what that did that was still mostly episodic, but introduced serialized elements and like really grew on people a lot, but was not nearly as popular like contemporaneously. So like that's one that people always talk about. Um I think most of them have their charms. Even Enterprise occasionally has its charms. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, okay. Um, people in the chat are hungry for more for more Star Trek talk, which that's all we're going to talk about today. So buckle up. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew is a Star Trek spurt, yeah. relative to me for sure. Mm-hmm. I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Delvin Heiss, to yeah, to talk to get into talking about the book. Never really read Star Trek novels. Like, okay, this is the sure. First Star Trek book, I think I've read. Even I though read there a are a bunch m- of Star Wars books, I'm right, know, right. Bam. <laughs> but um, like each series spawned off at least one like continuing series of of novels that happened contemporaneous with the run of the show and after the run of the show and sure. there are all kinds of like comics and, and stuff. I've just, I've never really gotten into those for whatever reason. I did enjoy this, but, but this is my first Star Trek book. And this is what I don't have a frame of reference for. I think about it in the context of goosebumps for our, our long read series of just like this era of mass market paperback and like property related paperback. I just don't, I, makes me want to go run and do a bunch of research about it because I think there's probably this is happening with a, a certain type of what do we do with these big IPs energy, which is just put them wherever we can, which is for $5 in a grocery store, you know, to, you mm-hmm. know, in the book section or something. Um, mm-hmm. Or as I was reading about this book in like, you know, Walden books and B Dalton's books and other bookstores <laughs> that unfortunately don't exist anymore. Um, They'd all have that, that like corner of the store, which was just these like sci-fi and fantasy books with these really like nerd, like the kinds of covers that you could paint on the side of your van. Like it's just very, <laughs> very over the top and stereotypical fantasy sci-fi. Um, so Della Van Heist was born in, May 1955, uh, she passed away last year in March, I think, of 2021, uh, and wrote a lot of Star Trek fan fiction featuring original characters under a number of pseudonyms, including, uh, I think, one of the most prominent, Alexis Fagan Black. Mm-hmm. Um, she also had published a few novels about vampires. I think those are the Ragged Angels books. Um <laughs> Those sound kind of neat. She's written a bunch of short fiction and poetry and and stuff. A lot of that was uh, the poetry was like later in her life. Um, and a lot of the other novels were in the 90s because I think this was one of her first, if not her first, like I, the term that I kept finding in the fanlore.org wikis mm-hmm. was professional novel, mm-hmm. which not being as well versed in the fan fiction community, I am taken to understand understand that is like when you go from writing within the fan fiction community to then like now you are actually writing a thing that is being commercially sold. Right. You're going a professional from like, novel. Yeah, going from 
I, I imagine like an AO3 situation or even like a self-published ebook situation to a, like I have an agent, I yeah. go through a traditional publisher, like that kind of thing. Well, and to, to read her talk about it, it was a lot of like trading stories in fanzines and th- all pre-internet stuff. Um, so lots of people just playing with the characters and probably having a big impact on the readers, but maybe not reaching as many readers as something like AO3 might today. Um, she did write some stuff in the 2000s about quantum shamans, um, some kind of new agey. <laughs> some okay. new, she wrote a, a book called Quantum Shaman Diary of a Nagua Woman, which is based on some stuff, some new agey shaman stuff that this guy uh, Carlos Castenda was writing, which some people think now is mostly just a bunch of fiction. I don't know. She's Rad. got stuff out Radical. there. <laughs> okay. I was trying to find a website for her, and I found one that was mostly her stuff that was quantumshaman.com, and I just, I had to just, I don't know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, she had written stories like Dreams of the Sleepers, Though This Be Madness, A Question of Balance, Yet Shall He Live. And those were all like part, many of them part of the Star Trek K slash S community, Andrew. Yes. Can you illuminate so, that for our listeners? The thing that I feel like most people probably know, but that I didn't know until I specifically looked it up, was that the term slash fic, which is used to refer to like same sex romance typically in a, in among characters works. in fan fiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, comes from originally comes from Kirk slash Spock or K slash S, mm-hmm. uh, which is people wanting Kirk and Spock who have a very close friendship in the show, want them to touch each other and kiss on the mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And she had so, written <laughs> Savannah. And the, I just want to bring the chat into it. Savannah says AO3 owes everything. to Star Trek fanfic writers. We have to respect our elders. Yeah. Um, Jason says, I remember that the only sure bet in Star Trek novels was the Peter David ones. And I think, you know, you can maybe talk, speak to this in, in Star Wars, but Mm. I feel like most of these like TV or movie franchises that spawned novels that just kind of like keep the brand alive in the, like the space between movies and TV shows. I think usually there are like individual authors who are considered to be like a cut above the the rest of yeah, so what is out there. In yeah. the Star Wars canon, it's the Timothy Zahn Thrawn books mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I've never actually read, but they are like highly regarded. It's this trilogy. Uh, it's this admiral that like people are like, we could just, what if they just finally made Thrawn movies? Could they just please make them? <laughs> and they're going to suck if they ever try to make If them. they ever make Thrawn movies, it'll just be like somebody's getting chased from one place to another <laughs> place because of some stupid MacGuffin and then I'll be all that it is. Yeah, it's And they won't use any John Williams music and it'll be a very disappointing experience. Um, and I, I think the Stackpole wrote a bunch of the X-Wing books. Yeah, there are people I remember reading a lot of and yeah they're like anchor authors within this like spin-off universe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but from what i could find on the origin of this book and so like you, we picked this book or you picked this book in part because of its history andrew i mean i did pick it because i googled gayest star trek book yeah 
<laughs> while trying to find a fun episode that we could do for Pride Month. And this yes. was before even we knew how bad we would need a fun one. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> um, um, yeah, go for it. Sure. And uh, what? <laughs> there's one quote from Van Heis about uh, writing all of this K slash uh, S. S fiction. What I wrote in the field of KS was written out of love, passion, and a deep desire to explore love through the written word. Someone once described KS as, quote, gay romance written by women for women. I would certainly agree with that, is what Van Heist <laughs> said. Uh, and this book was a a pro novel, which I now understand to mean professional novel, though I think mm-hmm. it also means like pro slash fic. Because like some of her stuff <laughs> is like some of her slash fic was pretty like graphic to my mm. understanding. I mean, this, this is like the official like Star Trek fiction series from pocket books. Like Gene Roddenberry is listed as the author on at least the, the motion picture. Like it's as close to officially blessed as I think you can possibly yes. get and in an era where that mattered. I think maybe a little more than it does now. And the, what, so it was published in 1985 it is. It has a lot of text in it. That is. Uh, I mean, it's a book. No, that that was. <laughs> it has a lot of text in it. That is very. Uh, Why does book have enough? This book doesn't have enough pictures. Very suggestive. Why don't we read more books with pictures of a of an intimacy in particular between Kirk and Spock? Though I would also yeah. say there are just other looks between characters that are that are pretty randy. There's some um, horn dogs in this, yes. including the dog person. Yeah, <laughs> it's a real horn dog. And she, over the years, gave a number of quotes about it. Um, that I think around when the J.J. Uh, Abrams movie came out, she mm-hmm. was a little more like, "Man, they kind of took some of my ideas, and this book had to get edited and republished." Because I think she's referencing the whole like parallel universe thing in the J.J. Abrams reboot movie sure. as like being part of her story here, which we can talk about whether or not you think that comparison is well-founded. Um, but because, because in Slash Fix, she has a lot of alternate universe stuff, which I also know happens in Star Trek regularly, but it's a good way yeah. to get to a place where they can kiss. Um is just what they're doing. Uh, (laughs) But her story is that at the time of, you know, leading up to publication, there were like three or four different editors working on the book. And there are multiple manuscripts like just flying around the publishing house to different, to the typesetter, to the editor, to whoever. And the version that got like made into books was not the final manuscript that she intended Mm -hmm. and it pro you know has a lot of stuff in it uh that that was for 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 personal use for personal use maybe (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and so then uh it gets they print like 150 or 200,000 of them and then they like are like no 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 we got to get rid of those they're not the right one and we're going to reprint it. And then it gets a little fuzzy because uh, somebody who worked for Gene Roddenberry said they got a letter from a lady complaining that this book had objectionable content in it. And so then this story takes off about that being 
the reason for them pulling and republishing it. But there are multiple interviews where Van Heist said, no, whatever you're saying is objectionable isn't in the novel because the novel that was on the shelves is not the final novel. But also, maybe you're just looking for it. It's there if you're looking for it. (laughs) (laughs) She seemed pretty like... At least in the '80s, was not willing to to like fully throw Star Trek under the bus for what happened here, mm-hmm. um, and instead was like, "Well, no, that's just not the version that was supposed to be out there." Um, but I think it's probably one of those like two things can be true situations. Yeah, yeah, possibly um, because yeah, the people are pretty horny, and the I don't uh, the one big character thing that I asked you about the other day that I just don't have a lot of context for mm-hmm. is this like spiritual slash telepathic connection between our boys Kirk and Spock that I think it must be the sun around which all slash fiction orbits <laughs> because it has this powerful pull of like an intimate friendship that they understand each other thoroughly and are connected to each other. In this book, they speak to each other across planets. I didn't know that they could do that. So, uh, yeah. And, and it, there's just a natural, like, I could stand on that stone and see myself jumping to the stone where they're hugging and then the mm-hmm. stone where they're kissing and then, you know. So if you're, if you're talking about original series Star Trek, like, newer Star Trek shows mostly are patterned on the next generation, which had an ensemble cast. And there were definitely people like, you know, Picard and, and data, like specifically probably get more like episodes and more development and more screen, maybe Worf too, than than other cast members. But it's really meant to be a show where everybody has their own thing going on. Everybody can get an episode focused on them you know, it's it's meant to be, you know, like seven or eight or however many leads. And you're okay. just kind of juggling stories amongst them. The original series was very, very much Kirk and Spock. And and then only in the second season, I think, did DeForest Kelly even get added to the regular cast. Like everybody else was sort of a recurring character, including, you know, Su- Sulu and Scotty and Uhura, like all the characters who I think got more... Um, got more to do in the films in particular. Yeah, that, that would make were sense. Mostly, but were mostly just there to fulfill, you just there to be familiar faces in the context of the show. And so you get different, like Kirk and Spock and McCoy are kind of one triangle and the, the movies especially play with that a little bit more in this book and in the show. Sometimes you get a lot of like Kirk loves the Enterprise a lot. He <laughs> loves that. Spaceboat a lot. <laughs> that Futurama episode with the original Star Trek cast. Oh, okay. Where, yes. Like that energy cloud like yes. ducks them, them on all trial. To, to the planet and like makes them put on his fan fiction. And there's a line of Kirk's where he says, The my ship, which I love like a woman, is disabled. Oh my god. <laughs> it like really encapsulates that relationship where Kirk is just he's like married to the sea except the sea is the enterprise. Yeah. But the like the duo at the heart of it has always been Kirk and, Kirk Spock. and Spock. Yeah. And there was a series of articles that uh Darren Franick did for Entertainment Weekly back in 2016 for the 50th anniversary of the franchise. Um 
going through each movie individually and just like talking about it at great length. And I, these, this, this is some of my favorite writing I think about Star Trek It's just really, really good. But I mean, he talks about how the show is really, I mean, it's, it's mainly Spock and Spock mm. was like such a huge breakout character and he was such an important archetype to the way that the show even works that every subsequent Star Trek show has its own like Spock alike. Is that why is data to, is like, data? Yeah. Data yeah. is the okay. data is the Spock on the next generation on deep space nine. It's Odo on Voyager. It's the doctor who is like a hologram who slowly attains sentience. Is this sort of um, like how family matters was a, was a show about a family living in Chicago and then it became a show. And about then it was Steve about Urkel. Urkel. So Spock <laughs> is the Urkel of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> But doesn't Urgo go to I, space at the end of that show? Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But I, I digress a little bit. But like Kirk and, <laughs> Kirk and Spock is the is the duo at the heart of the thing. But no, there is never any moment in any show or movie that I can remember where they literally speak telepathically like Ray and Kylo Ren like that that part of the I was going to say maybe it happens in other books, but like they, they have a. They have a close link. They are like brothers, but Ooh. just because I'm like brothers with somebody, I can't like be at the beer store and communicate with you telepathically to find out what six pack you want me to get, you know, like, God. and that's how it's portrayed in it's this. It's called texting. Um, <laughs> well, and that, that actually helps me understand a little bit that this book really felt to me and we'll get into the plot. We're going to get into the plot in a, in a minute or two. Now this book felt to me like a Spock story like mm-hmm. spock is there there are chapters that are from a romulan perspective um and there are certainly stuff that is kirk's perspective mm-hmm. but and it's probably just a function of like who spock is and and how he functions but like he takes up most of the air of the book mm-hmm. i would say yeah that's um, that's that's fair which is and just also on the cover <laughs> well yes he is on, um, oh, oh so here's how you know uh, if you at home are looking to spend, are you going to talk about the first edition thing? Yes. If you yeah, are, great. if you cool. are at home looking to spend too much money on a on a Star Trek book, um, and you want to make sure you get the right edition, so the very first printing of the new Star Trek novel, Killing Time. Sorry for my ring light here, YouTube crew. Um, thanks, Andrew. Has an embossed, like raised. Uh, title treatment it's gold and it actually like you know you can run your finger on it and and feel the letters Mm -hmm. um if you the revised edition uh the letters are not embossed and they're just a boring yellow Mm -hmm. and then there's a another revised edition where it's harder to read the title and it's smaller uh, mm-hmm. And I think there's the I think the first Canadian edition has a different cover, but also has the racy text in it. So keep an, there's a cover that I I read somewhere has like a maple leaf on it. Keep an eye out for it. Yeah, if you we bought two copies of this book off of eBay for like forty or forty five dollars, it's like you have to go looking for it, and it's definitely it costs more than a regular book, but it's not like the super rare collector's item. Yes. But if you are on eBay looking for a genuine first edition, except for the part on the inside where it says first edition on it, the embossed lettering on the title page is or you know the front page is the the cover. The cover of the book. The cover Why of can't the I book. remember what the cover the of the front book is page. Called? Uh question That's how from you tell. The chat, Andrew, as we get into the book, I was talking about how this was a, a Spock book. Cassandra mm-hmm. asks, 
Uh, is the book written with accents or mannerisms of the different narrators? Does it change writing styles? Do you want to answer that one? I don't think it really does. But Scotty has. Oh yeah, Scotty. Scotty does. You don't spend a ton of time with Scotty, but Scotty gets like a, an Isney, like yes. you know, like whatever Some very Scotch light Scottishism. But which the, is true to what James Duhan was doing as as that character, I think. But the, the, he was the, not Scott. The narration style doesn't ever really change. It's a close third person. No, I mean if you're familiar with the the series, I think Heist does Van Heist does a good job of capturing like the the mannerisms of Nimoy as Spock and Shatner as Kirk in particular. But no, it's not a thing where you get super different, like stylized voices no this yeah, to they, me, they, they put things differently but i wouldn't call it stylized there, something about this literal object this literal mass market paperback and the style of print and the type of paper like it I did it. it did feel a lot to me like reading star wars novels as a kid mm-hmm. like i'm just mm-hmm. like i'm in a genre space i'm in a an, uh, an established canon property space and I'm just like watching someone play with their Legos, you know. <laughs> um, Andrew, let's get into the plot because it's let's a fun one. Plot. I do think yes. we want to do a, a a proper like plot exploration. We do. We we yeah. This is maybe this will run a little long, or maybe we'll just go fast. So this this is particular kind of Star Trek story. I did develop a visual aid, so I'm going to pull up. Oh wow! A slide okay. deck that I prepared, and can you see that on the? stream or something somehow can we'll you just see, it's, i will confirm yes visual. here it is okay. yes it's all right okay. <laughs> so i made i made just a little we'll deck. make sure we share this out somehow on mm-hmm. social media or something it's very important and so this is the kind of star trek episode that this is and i want to make sure that i have my notes up okay so first thing that happens in a star trek story like this is hey it's a normal day on the enterprise yeah and nothing in particular is happening here's what okay here's what stood out to me as a little well it's not i will i will pop the slides in and out as as we yeah go for it yeah it's a normal day on the enterprise we're seeing the characters walk around the ship mm-hmm. it's letting me know that all the characters from my beloved tv show are in this book it's introducing <laughs> me to a man named richardson Jerry Richardson. Jerry, I think? His name's Jerry Richardson, and I think we're just gonna call him Jerry. I think Jerry Lieutenant Jerry is or whatever Jerry an OC name. for this novel. Yeah, Jerry. Jerry never appears anywhere else, as far as I can tell. Like he's so unknown, even among like Star Trek wiki writers, that when I googled him, I had to put in minus Panthers to cut out the name of a coach of the Panthers, because those were all the... Even if you Google Jerry Richardson Star Trek, it's just all that Panthers guy. So, so. In, a, in a world where I know that Captain Kirk is, uh, you know, regularly, you know, smooching in space women... Um, yeah. Jerry Richardson is the horn dog of the of the deck. Boy, he is just a walking HR complaint, is and, what Jerry Richardson and is. It's it the it also introduces a character whose name I don't remember. Uh, the yeoman who is a Catellan, which Sparva. is yeah, Sparva. She is a Catellan, which is some sort of quadrupedal space dog. Also does not appear anywhere other than this book. Though okay. there are there are cat people in the animated series and then also in Lower Decks, the newer cartoon. Okay. Uh, because Jerry Richardson has a thing for her. 
Also, he's been rejected by a bunch of other people. He's and been rejected, yeah. It's, re- it's really weird, but okay. Yes, yikes, yes, yikes. <laughs> um, all right, go back to your to your slideshow. It's a normal okay. day on the Enterprise. It's a nor- normal day on the Enterprise. People not, are, like, not, actually bored. People are bored? Like, Kirk's going swimming on the pool? Which we never see the Enterprise's pool on the show. He was swimming in a pool. <laughs> yes. All right, it's a normal day on the Enterprise. Or is it? Oh. <laughs> so, is that your next uh, this slide? Is, this is the, yes. So... <laughs> This is when you, the audience, learns that maybe something is wrong. But the characters see, don't fully know. The, the characters don't fully know. Like, maybe they have just beamed back from some planet and they brought back a weird space virus. Maybe some weird time loop thing is going on, but the other characters don't know about it yet. You, the audience, are, are clued in to it being a not normal day on the Enterprise, but yeah. the characters on the show don't know yet. Okay. And, and then maybe and, some, and then maybe during this story phase, maybe some minor characters learn about it as well. So what is the not? This is not normal here on this, on in this story, Andrew. This is, I mean, this is the initial. This is not normal moment is that a lot of people are having weird dreams. Weird dreams, mm-hmm. um, where Kirk has a dream that he is an ensign. Now, as I learned at the top of this show, ensign is lower than captain. Yeah, and it makes him feel strange. (laughs) And uh, Spock was the captain in his dream, Mm -hmm. and we learned that Spock had basically the same dream from his perspective. Yeah, Uh, and so as the the not normalness spreads, it is people wonder like people saying they've been having strange dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they, they, they sort of start to catch on, but they don't like McCoy is just like, well, maybe everybody's just bored. I don't know what's really Cause they're on, on like maybe, some, maybe it's nothing. Maybe they're it's on nothing. a patrol mission outside the neutral zone right, doing yeah, they're, nothing. They're at the neutral zone, which is sort of a, a DMZ between Federation space and Romulan space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay, maybe so something's maybe something's up. Maybe something's the up. Enterprise. Then we move into a phase that I like to call curious, where one or more <laughs> main cast members realizes that something is wrong. <laughs> in this instance, it's Spock, right? In this, well, in this instance, it's yeah, it's Spock is the one who brings it up and makes everybody take it seriously. Cause Spock is not given to flights of fancy. And no, McCoy's he's like, very well, logic you, driven. McCoy's like, why didn't you tell me that Spock was also having weird dreams? <laughs> I wasn't going to look into it just because you were telling me about it, Kirk. But if Spock is, then I definitely have to look into it. Yeah, that's true. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And so the, so this is when, the book like tips over into what the rest of the story is going to be is they're having these dreams of this alternate universe. And then they all go to sleep like one space night. And then they sort of tip into the alternate universe. Yeah. But a lot of them are feeling weirdly displaced and are having what are clearly like visions of their regular or like the lives that we know, like Ensign Kirk is having these weird visions of being a captain and captain Spock is having these weird visions of being a commander with the super cool, handsome (laughs) friends. Yes. And the, the narrator 
is not like a character. It's just the omniscient narrator starts referring to them as Captain Spock and Ensign Kirk. They mm-hmm. are different characters functionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's and, important, important to note, this is not the mirror universe where everyone is evil. No. This is just a different universe. And they do reference the mirror universe a couple of times. In <laughs> yes. <this. laughs> there, there's also a Red Shirts reference that I saw a quote where... Like two of them, which felt yeah. very fan fiction-y to me. It's like, don't wear a red shirt on a... Like, yeah. the red shirt denotes what division you're in. You can't just, like, you don't just reach into your dresser and pick what color you want to wear that day. Like, the shirts mean something. Come she, on. She said in one interview that she was surprised that that got through. Um, I am, too, yes. because it's a travesty. Yeah, there's no weird mustaches, um, uh, Cheryl. There's no weird mustaches. It's just they are the same, quote-unquote, uh, but... They are occupying, like, different roles, and it's not the Enterprise anymore. Kirk is having dreams about a silver lady <laughs> or a silver goddess or oh something. Oh, boy. Which, and it's a spoiler alert. It turns out to be the Enterprise. Just the his Enterprise. Ship that, his ship that he wants to make love to. What is the ship called? It's the VSS Shakar? Is that what yeah, it is? something like that. Um, Because in this universe, and you, you don't get a full info dump for a little while. Yeah, the Shikar. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Spock's ship, and yeah. Vulcans are in the lead of Starfleet, if it's still called Starfleet, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's called the Alliance instead of the Federation. But the I Rebel Alliance? Is, are no, there Jedi? Starfleet, stop Do it. they use the Star- Force? Starfleet Where is were Starfleet. the lightsabers in this book? Which of these ships is most like a X-Wing? And what would you say is the Trench Star run of this novel? I mean, for me, the Trench Star run of this podcast is getting through however much of this conversation you want to have. <laughs> um, but yes, history has been changed. History's been changed, but like it's it's not like an inverse of anything. It's just like a, a weird shift over from what normally would would be the deal and not everyone in the star trek universe that we know about not everyone's different right like isn't um isn't like uhura is still the comms person yeah and so and mccoy is still the doctor so it you know the the new characters on this vulcan ship are also having weird dreams except they're having dreams about being there like so, so the the book terms it later as first history being like the prime universe that we know about, and then second history being like this new universe that was created by what I don't know. We don't know yet. Yeah. Um, and so now the the second history people are having visions of their first history like counterparts. Yes, and it's happening a lot like it was at the beginning of the book, and so they go to McCoy who starts to like sort of piece it together with the help of this weird technology that can apparently like re- just record video footage it's of just, what your brain is doing. It's just a TiVo of your dreams. <laughs> yeah. And it's really, I don't know. It's, it's kind of wacky. Um, I was also getting as they, as, at one point McCoy, he's explaining the results of this big TiVo experiment to Spock. And he's like, listen, there were 13 people who had no visions whatsoever, which leads mm-hmm. me to believe that in first history, those people are dead. Yeah. They're dead, Jim. Well, he said yeah. it to Spock. They're dead, Spock. Mm-hmm. They're dead, Spock. And mm-hmm. that was the moment where 
I got full boss baby meme guy and I was like, I'm getting, I've seen one television show and it's Severance and I'm getting big Severance vibes from this book right now <laughs> because they have this, Jesus. they have this Spock is like wrestling I with. I think I can do this with the, you anymore. <laughs> the Spock is wrestling with the the moral question of, okay, these people in this second history didn't exist. Maybe they don't exist, and if we restore the universe to the way it's supposed to be, they'll we'll all die for people we versions of ourselves we'll never meet or know. Yeah, so it's like the people who are having weird dreams are people who exist in both universes, but their roles are different. People who don't seem affected by this as much are people who exist in both universes, but like McCoy, their roles are pretty much the same. Like yeah. they're not experiencing nothing, but they aren't having the like the dreams, the psychological or, or physiological symptoms that the other people are having. And they, so, so this is the next part on my slide where people start sure. to put things together. And I call this phase of a Star Trek episode, I need options because that's when <laughs> multiple members of the crew come together and start to try and suss out whatever the problem is. Okay. One of those options is the brain TiVo. Mm-hmm. Not- and the, well, it's, <laughs> they're, they're, during this phase where they do the brain TiVo and they do like the comprehensive like workup of all the people who are having weird dreams, that's yeah. when they put together this working theory that, hey, this is a weird universe oh, yeah. and the other universe might be the right one and it's trying to assert itself. But if we try to correct it, aren't we like killing a bunch of people? And like, what are the, you know, it, it, they, they have defined the problem. But they don't they don't know what to do about it yet, and they don't know even whether they should do it. Is this about before it yet. or after Spock runs a computer simulation that comes to the conclusion that if we don't fix it in about two weeks, the entire universe is just gonna lose its mind and fall apart? <laughs> All the people who are having the weird dreams are going to the 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 compare the the analogy that the book makes a few times is like a host rejecting an organ like yeah yes yes the yes. people who are having the most trouble reconciling first and second history are just going to lose their minds and this and was when i knew i was it'll be in a... it'll be like 2 weeks before they lose their minds for some reason <laughs> this was when i knew i was in a star trek where it used a powerful metaphor like that to be like we have a space problem mm-hmm. and here is we have a, a problem very out here in space understandable <laughs> powerful metaphor about it uh, and it's happening to like leadership. There's a few like beats in the in the narrative that aren't worth like diving into. Where like leadership back in Vulcan Starfleet is sending them on like bogus missions mm-hmm. and stuff's going wrong because people are just literally losing it. Yeah, they can't mm-hmm. handle the multiple realities. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to get into why this is happening, or do you do you have more slides? My bad, sorry. Go I mean, ahead. I have news. I I have more slides, but it's been it's been working good to like go through them as we get to those parts of the story. Okay, okay. So, so this is all like while while the bridge crew or the whatever like main the like, top build top build cast members <laughs> are like starting to figure out the problem. Things all like sometimes there's like a B story that's happening and and often the situation just continues to escalate in other ways. One of the other stories slash escalations escalations that's going on while the crew of the Shikar puts this together is we start paying attention to these Romulans and How the often Romulans does this are happen like, on the show. There where it cuts Romulans over to the baddies. 
there are on the original series, I think almost, almost always you are experiencing things through the eyes of like the enterprise crew. You don't get a lot of like evil solo villain monologues. So I'll admit that my TOS like knowledge is not as encyclopedic as it is for, for like later shows. Yeah. Okay. Um, but usually, I mean, that's, that's how the, the mystery part of a Star Trek episode with a mystery works though. It's like, you're discovering it along with the crew and that's what the, that's what the mystery is. This novel functions a little differently though. Cause it, it mm-hmm. gives you info on what the Romulans are up to. Yeah. Which is, I didn't know that Romulans mm-hmm. can time travel. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? This is the so the way that they time travel and they say specifically like, yeah, some some like humans and Vulcans have time traveled, but they haven't like figured out how to do it like reliably for some reason. The way they do it is they like slingshot around the sun so fast that the shit becomes part of time and then they can time travel somehow. It was some pretty good timey wimey language, I think. Yeah, this is it's interesting because this is pretty much exactly how they time travel in star trek for a movie that would not come out for another two years that's cool yeah that's cool and so i don't know where i don't know where that came from if it like was already circulating in like scripts of star trek four or van other novels about it or if it's just like i don't know slingshotting around the sun sounds cool maybe that can just be how time (laughs) travel works so (laughs) the romulans uh went back in time to try and prevent uh, Starfleet from happening. To prevent the Federation from happening, yeah. Um, the Federation, excuse me. They're, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they uh, kill three members, uh, three Earthlings that would go on to form the Federation. Jason and, says the slingshot around the sun thing was from a TOS. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay. Um, My main touch point for it is Star Trek Four, but... Sure. With the that hope, doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> the hope, the goal of the Romulans was to cause this to happen such that the Federation would not exist, and then they could, you know, conquer the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned that this didn't work as intended. Because- yeah, apparently, Romulan society didn't invent a version of the movie The Butterfly Effect because nobody knows about <laughs> unintended consequences of time travel. Uh, because a hundred seasons or years later. Uh, they got they had gotten into a war with Vulcan, the planet Vulcan and the Vulcans that live there. And yeah, like they they stopped the Federation from forming, but continue. But then the Vulcans beat them back and then basically form their own version of the Federation, bringing the Earthlings into the picture. Uh, and so it is slightly weak. The the part of the book where this is most emblazoned in my brain is that like. One of the Romulans is talking about how in the first history, uh, Starfleet had like a dozen really good spaceships. And in this version of history, there's like eight. Like they're not, <laughs> they're like weaker, <laughs> but they're not gone. And so, and I think later in the book, they get into like a metaphysical, like because the formation of the Federation was such a monumental event for the history of the universe, you can't wipe it off of the universe's memory so easily 
mm-hmm. which is what's leading to all of this timey wimey headache stuff that's caught. That's yeah, I mean, it, some of it, some of it is normal timey wimey stuff. Like if you go back in time and kill Hitler, like okay, maybe you kill Hitler, but you don't necessarily kill the underlying causes that yeah. enabled Hitler's rise to power. And so yes. maybe somebody else becomes Hitler. Yes. <laughs> and, and then also it's this weird stuff where the, and this doesn't like in all the time travel stuff that I've seen in Star Trek, you don't really get this. Like there is one canonical universe that's like struggling to reassert itself. Yeah. And, like having physiological, it's, it's a pretty straightforward, like, you go back in time and you step on the butterfly and then it makes the other things happen. Like it's, it's not a, not so much a like headbutting of, of two worlds. So that, that is what Van Heys is doing. That is unique to like a Star Trek time travel or like alternate universe story, I think. Sure. Um, and, and the way that this alternate history manifests in, and I would be interested to know what you think, Andrew. My Andrew says poor Romulans, all these universes and they're the losers in all of them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and maybe this builds to Savannah's question of how uh, the Spock and Kirk uh, slash stuff plays into this ethical we've, quandary. Yeah, we've talked mostly about Spock, and mostly because he is the, like you said, he's the he's the main character of the book, and he's yeah. also the one who you're with when we figure out what the like core mystery. Yeah, is. and the thing for for Kirk for me in this book is that because Ensign Kirk, he's like. He may or may not have murdered somebody, and then he was subjected to torture by the Talos machine, and he doesn't want to be in prison, so he let himself get drafted into Starfleet, and so he's basically there, and he hates it, which is not my... it is my understanding that Captain Kirk loves adventuring and going out into space, and, and he loves his spaceship being in the, charge the of a spaceship yeah. yeah, that he mm-hmm. can... Uh, make love to and he also loves caressing the bulkheads in- <laughs> yeah. and and this captain kirk has a lot Climb, of like climbing up the jeffrey's tubes <laughs> has a lot of you know rejecting the call sort of stuff and so the the arc for kirk and spock in the book is like spock realizing that him having power is actually not the natural quote unquote order of things. He has to like put Kirk back on the space throne to restore balance in the universe. And he ha- so he has to not only does he have to solve this mystery and undo the time stuff, he has to get Kirk back into Captain Kirk the person. Well, so, so they have a couple of meetings where both of them are like, he's the captain and I'm an ensign. Why do we feel like this should be reversed? Why do yeah, we feel like yeah. why do I feel like this little like snot-nosed drug addict ensign is somebody who I can confide in and, and who I'm close to? Yep. And this is where a lot of the slashy stuff in the book comes in is there's just like one scene where where Kurt comes into Spock's like quarters and Spock just like doesn't have a shirt on for some reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, original series watchers will know that that William Shatner uh, famously d- d- wasted no opportunity to get his shirt off <laughs> during the show, but it was not so much Nimoy's thing. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> um, so you have that, and then you have this other really like pivotal scene. So so going back before we jump into the second history, um. They have the scene in another part of the enterprise that we never see on the show, which is like these botanical gardens, which they have created 
as a sort of like a green space with like a holographic sky where people can yeah. go to kind of feel like they're at home and, and, you know, experiencing earth. Some life on earth. The yeah. kind of thing that honestly, like, even if you're not doing like a Bioshock style, like this is how we generate oxygen for our spaceship thing. You, you definitely would do it. it as like a, as a way to combat like homesickness for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's Kirk and Spock in the first history go and they have this talk and mostly we, they just like talk about, they, they talk about the weird dreams and they think about how close their bond is with each other. It's very, they think a lot about each other. They think a lot about each other. And then in, in second history, Spock is sort of like Kirk, Ensign Kirk has gone missing. Nobody knows where he is. Spock goes down to these gardens drawn by some weird inexorable force and they meet each other and then what happens Craig um Kirk is really kind of rejecting the call and Spock wants to do what does Kirk pass out or something Spock wants to do a mind meld with him Mm -hmm. and he does a mind meld with him because Kirk is kind of sort of going through withdrawal from this like these like drugs that he's been taking to make the dreams go away yes and he does a mind meld that like Kirk does not agree to uh, just so that he can try to connect with him. And then Kirk is like really mad and trying to fight Spock off. And there's a, there's a point in this book where Spock is pinning Kirk to the ground and like has him wrapped with his legs. And it is just like stuff happens when you're fighting a guy in the botanical garden, (laughs) but it is, uh, here, here, using Vulcan strength, Spock seized both of Kirk's wrists in one hand, holding him immobile. With his legs, he scissored the human's ankles, ebony black eyes, stabbed through hazel golden pools, compelling cooperation. With his free hand, he reached for the human's face, fingers spreading and seeking the neural ce- centers necessary to a link. So, they don't bone, but when one... When when an alien race can like meld their thoughts with your thoughts by touching you on the face, like I feel like this is this is pretty much it, right? Yeah, like, this is the this is the money shot right here. Is this like pr- honestly pretty non consensual mind meld? That well, happens. and the the so the original the sentence I the paragraph I just read comes after Spock saying it's time to stop running and then everything I said happens and then some more stuff happens from Kirk's perspective and then it's just like you know Spock tried to infiltrate his mind in the next edition the proper edition quote unquote it's just it's time to stop running and then Kirk infiltrates his mind <laughs> like none of the stuff Spock about oh mind? Spock infiltrates his mind um, none of the stuff about Spock restraining him or anything like that happens. The other, the scene you mentioned earlier uh, without the shirt and stuff, I did want to read that as well. Oh, please um, do. So this is in Kirk, uh, in, in, who's his, <laughs> Cassandra offers that they brain boned, which oh, no. they, they didn't, they didn't not. Who's, I don't remember whose um, quarters this is in. Um, which thing are you? Talking about the uh, where the one where one of them is not wearing a shirt and they talk about uh, Kirk stripping him to the psychic marrow. Basically, I thought that that's either Spock's quarters or like sick bay, right? Because there's another 
they have another mm. little interaction in sickbay after they have that weird little away mission that goes awry because yes. the, like the the like <laughs> the starfleet dispatch like sent them on a bad mission because he's going nuts <laughs> So I, I'm reading this from a live journal post, uh, lex the flexlivejournalcom slash 877.html. And they have pulled together a bunch of these excerpts and they've bolded up the, the words that are not in the additional, uh, in the second printing. And a is lot this, of is them. Is this HTTPS at least? I would hate to think that this is not encrypted. It is a secure website. I okay, have the good. little, That's I have the good. little lock in my <laughs> browser. Thank um, God. And a lot of the language around people's eyes and stuff about the shirt in this section did not make it into the second printing. Mm-hmm. Why do you care? Kirk asked at last. Bold, meeting the Vulcan's eyes. And Scock and Spock. Uh, bold felt himself weaken under the human's scrutiny. He glanced away from the bold intense hazel globes, but the stakes were too high to permit intimidation to interfere with logic. The Vulcan shivered, glancing forlornly across the room, bold to the discarded shirt, yet he knew that no amount of clothing could cover his psychic nakedness. Kirk could strip him to the marrow with a single question, unbold. I can offer no logical explanation, he replied truthfully. So anything, anytime I said bold, that's stuff that didn't make it into the next revision. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the, a lot of subtext was made almost text in this mm-hmm. book where well, on the show, it might just be like they glance at each other and then you, the watcher, go like, are they a little? And then I don't even know that they necessarily do that much on the show. Like they, they are just like pals who share scenes a lot. Yeah. Sh- well, yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, it's just like there's a lot of language like that, a lot of talk of hazel globes. Savannah says, calling eyes globes and orbs is such a fanfic trope. Glad to know it dates back this far. (laughs) It's really, yeah, it's some formative stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Foundational texts. Yes. Um, So so what what happened? There's the whole plot line with the woman in charge of the Romulans. So the the book kind of, like, I think the... Like I like I said, the, the like one universe straining to reassert itself stuff doesn't happen a ton in Star Trek, mm. like alternate universe stuff. I think the closest analog is maybe there's this Deep Space Nine episode um, that's really famous that I think is called like Among the Stars or um, DS9 Among the Stars. And DS9 is the Roundy Moore one, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Far, far beyond the stars. Yes. Um, where the cast just like from the jump there's not even like an establishing stuff it's just the the cast of the show is all like these um like these newspaper people like these human people during like the the 1950s i think and and cisco the captain on that show starts to have like visions of himself as a captain on a space station and like the whole last couple seasons of that show there's this little like hovering question where like am i watching is this dallas (laughs) am i watching star trek deep space nine which is a show about things that really happened in the 24th century or am i watching a thing that this other character like wrote as a story in like roseanne show yeah yeah exactly like roseanne okay Um, interesting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, I was a, I was really I was drawn to and enjoying the like 
twist on the alternate universe thing that this book was doing. And then in the middle, it sort of starts to fall apart for me a little bit. It's where, tricky. Like, they've, they've already introduced an element where they have limited time to do something. And then they decide, oh, Spock also has Ponfar, which is a thing from the show where every seven years, I think, Vulcans get so horny that they have to have sex or they die. This was <laughs> wild to me. This was a part of the book. I don't know why you would establish like this whole time pressure thing. And then I, it did. It felt a little fan fiction-y to me because I think sometimes fan fiction feels the need to like put every cram piece in. in. Yeah. yeah, like cram in as many like canonical things from the show as possible to like prove cred or just to like make people do the the Leonardo DiCaprio point where they understand the reference. <laughs> the, yeah, it was wild. I was like, wait a second. He has space heat and he's gonna die if he doesn't bone. Yep. Like mm-hmm. that adds a lot. Of, and McCoy is like. You've got that space heat, huh? You've like, got the your space brain heat. is melting and mm. your crotch is mm. like, mm. yeah. Uh, and so that was an extra. All that, all that green blood is. is going, that was a lot somewhere. of extra pressure on the novel, and then the the book does not uh, really go for it. Instead, it brings this character that is a ref or maybe a, a further developed version of what a character from a season three episode it is, is supposed a to reference be? it is a reference to an unnamed romulan officer from the season three episode the enterprise incident incident uh season three of star trek the original TOS. series is not super well regarded because of the budgetary issues that i had mentioned previously sure and like gene ronberry sort of checked out because he knew the <laughs> network didn't want to make the show that he wanted to make and so yes <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but yeah, she's but apparently... yeah, like she doesn't she doesn't even have a name in that episode. But it is apparently based on an episode of the original series where they like go to steal a cloaking device from the Romulans because it's technology. That and her have. name is her name is Taya or Thea. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure we say her name because she's not named in that episode. But mm-hmm. she is like this secretive person who whose dad orchestrated the time travel plot. She was able to be out. She was in hyperspace when the time travel thing happened. So she remembers both histories sort of, and she's going to use this as an opportunity to make the Romulans more peaceful by reading them tenets of the Vulcan civilization. And then she, but she wants Spock to do it for her. So she captures, she captures captain Kirk to trick Spock into coming to save him. And then Spock's like, this plan sucks. Like, this isn't going to work out. Can you just send me back in the past so I can fix all this? And she's like, okay. And <laughs> and then she's like, but can we have sex first? And Spock's like, yeah, otherwise I'll die. <laughs> <laughs> like, doesn't McCoy or Kirk make a, a child support joke to him in the epilogue or something? Yeah, Kirk does. And you get, you get like, a, like this whole thing about Ponfar is like, tied up in this sort of I don't know if I want to say puritanical but that's the word that's Mm. coming to mind so that's the one I'm going to use but like Spock has this whole thing about how all he has to do is have sex with somebody it's not like a super he's not mating for life yeah but the connotation on Vulcan usually is that that is what you're doing Uh, but he is half human, half Vulcan. It's a thing that's referenced a lot in this book without really being, I think, unpacked much because I think the book assumes that you've watched multiple other works where yeah, it's already yeah, been yeah, yeah. sort of unpacked a little bit. <laughs> um, but, she, you know, they, they have a bond after they 
have sex like Spock and, and Taya, this Romulan officer, yep. but it, it's implied during this like run up to this Ponfar thing that there are people on Vulcan. I don't remember the term that the book uses for them, but like people on Vulcan who do exist just to like help Vulcans not die without having to like, yeah. get married about it. I've know? been to Amsterdam. I know <laughs> how it works. <laughs> Vulcan sex workers, man. Vulcans go to like love hotels every society. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's important work. Um, But no, the Ponfar stuff was really weird, and I couldn't. Me, a a a Star Trek newbie, could not tell if that was something created for the book. It was not. No. Okay. Um, It's created for a season two episode called "A Mock Time." A mock time. I don't know how you pronounce. Oh yes. Okay. A mock time. (laughs) Yeah, okay. <laughs> where Kirk and Spock have to fight for the death, and newer shows reference it like constantly. <laughs> sure, um, yeah. and so they save the day. They go back in time. the The people who were going to kill the the Starfleet guys were androids, Romulan yeah. androids. Sure. Uh huh. Yeah, they send them back in time to kill the guys who helped start the the Federation. Federation. Um, yeah. and Spock and Kirk kick their butts. And then have like a really touching moment together where they're like, I guess we're both going to fade from existence. Huh? Yeah, they're just kind of waiting to, quote, die. But in their case, like dying is just sort of fading from the timeline because they prevented themselves from existing. Can I say that that was a little confusing to me as a concept because right. the way that Spock talks about the dual timeline thing a lot is that like you're... I couldn't tell if their physical bodies had also changed. You know what I mean? Like, was their mind just experiencing it? No, because like a hundred years had passed since the time bifurcation. So like mm-hmm. their bodies would have been different. Their bodies would have been different just by virtue of having different experiences. Yeah. Okay. Cassandra says Romulan Terminators. That yes. is it's pretty much pretty much exactly Romulan yeah. Terminators sent back in time to change history. Whoa. When did the mm-hmm. when was the Terminator made? Did they also steal that from her? I think that was nineteen eighty four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So she did steal Terminators. Or Everybody were... <laughs> who ever has an idea after it already happened somewhere else is probably written in parallel. <laughs> um, and then they, they yeah, they kind of bid goodbye to each other and then they, they go back to the Enterprise and mm-hmm. then don't they do another mind meld where they like remember all the other stuff? Yeah, because it's, you know, it's just as the second history versions of them were like the, the first history versions were breaking through into their minds. So also in the first history universe for Kirk and Spock in particular, their second history versions are like straining to be remembered. And yeah. so they meet again in like the little botanical garden and they remember each other again. Sure. It's very touching. And but it's about they, how, like, the, these other people who we didn't know sacrificed their lives in a way. They did. To, to uh, make our lives possible again. Yes. Um, so this is my, my, just my last slide real please. quick. So after, you know, after the problem solving phase, you get back to, well, so first you, you have to ask yourself, this varies from story to story. The, the question you have to ask yourself is, did the thing <laughs> that we tried to fix everything work? <laughs> If it didn't, you go back to the previous phase. Yeah, okay. You go back a space and you have to try again. Okay. Uh, All the while, the tension is rationing up further and further. If it did work in the first place, or if the, you know, the second attempt works, 
then you get to the end of an episodic Star Trek story where you're pretty much back to normal. Okay. And it's like there are important parameters for this. Like this individual situation cannot permanently change a character. Like usually, even if you're Captain Picard and you find a space anomaly that makes you go and live a whole other life. And then suddenly you go back into your body having lived this whole other life. Like that's not a thing that you're allowed to be like super messed up by forever no. for the rest of your life. No, 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 no. It's a thing that you can't really remember next Well, because if I tune in next week having not seen that, I yeah, can't like be missing something. That. So, I mean, the, these situations can reveal more about a character's established personality to us. Yeah. They can, over the course of several seasons, sort of, over time, like accrete and like make the character more nuanced. Yes. But they can't change who a character is. Yeah. yeah. And then another part of going back to normal is nobody dies except some one off crewmate that we just met might die. And especially if we learn literally anything about that person, then they're definitely going to die. <laughs> if, if a Star Trek show stops to humanize somebody you've never met before for even one second, they're absolutely going to eat it on an away mission or something. So doesn't the guy who died in this book, Donner, isn't he the guy who treats Kirk like crap, though? Well, he's like an alternate universe person. I think the closest thing you get to this is Jer- the old Lieutenant Jerry. Does he die? Who- yeah, well, I mean, he dies in the alternate universe, but he's the only one on the Enterprise other than Kirk and Spock who has oh. like these these after images who like still remembers and is troubled by this thing that happened to him in the second history. Okay, sure. So yes. it's sort of like he's as close as you get to that in this particular story. But yeah, it's well, you know, main cast members can't die. And except there's like a- maybe sometimes if it's a season finale and somebody doesn't think that their Star Trek show is going to run very much longer. And so they leave to go be on another show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was like that D plot where he hung out with the psychic dog lady for a while. I like like the psychic dog lady. I don't think we're going to talk about her a lot. She's going to get short shrift, but like she's yet another character who exists to be like telepathic for some reason. (laughs) I think they they use her as like a, uh, like a control from McCoy's, TiVo plan sort of uh, I think is what is what winds up happening um, I don't know I had fun with this book I think the the like slash content is there in this edition mm-hmm. even though our two main our two main boys never actually kiss it is really about their love for each other and and their love for the alternate version for the 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 first history versions of themselves mm-hmm. that like propels the plot forward um if spock didn't care about kirk the way he does and and believe in kirk the way that he does he would not go to the lengths that he goes to to like fix the universe and and do mm-hmm. it the way that he does also the part about all the romulan stuff even though i think it was kind of a distraction from what was really working it felt very star trekky to me in that uh, the Romulan that we spend the most time with or get to know the best, this woman, Taya, is not really like the evil mastermind. Like she says that she would have uh, like aborted the, the time travel plot if a bunch of people ha- hadn't already been like, that sounds cool. We should do that. <laughs> I mean, and that, she's that trying has, to use it to make things better for people in her words a, anyway. A longstanding like Star Trek precedent like if you 
think about a a scene in a show or movie where a villain does an extremely late in life face turn or mm. like they they look at the hero character and say oh in another in another life we could have been friends like that's literally Kirk and some Romulan guy talking to each other in an episode of Star Trek. Yeah, actually, yeah. a Romulan played by Mark Leonard, who would mostly be known later on for his role playing Spock's dad. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're just not supposed to notice that it's the same guy. <laughs> sure, playing both of them. Well, I'm glad that you found us this book to read, Andrew. This was an interesting part. It was fun of, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah, an interesting part of Star Trek history. Um, we just got to talk about Star Trek a lot, which I'm yeah. always up for. And a, an interesting way to talk about Star Trek on our book podcast, where I don't know what the like canonical Star Trek book would be. Like this has such an interesting hook to it mm-hmm. that it felt like we could covering it is of some value to like the history of Star Trek books. Yeah, relative to just like, well, what if we read the novelization? Well, of the and, first we, movie? and we brush up against fan fiction all the time. And, yeah, and we do. Star Trek is Star Trek is so as as you know we talked about with the slash fic stuff, and as uh, some people in the chat talked about with Ao3, like Star Trek is so foundational to, I think both the good and bad parts of modern fandom. Yeah, and yeah. also, and you know, with that part and parcel with that modern fan fiction that yeah. Yeah, you kind of can't talk about the medium without at least talking about Star Trek. So yeah, I was a little disappointed when, there weren't more lightsabers, though. Yeah, I mean that must be in another book, right? Because there's that scene in Wrath of Khan. I mean, you watched it where Kirk and Khan meet and they have a big lightsaber fight. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Talks about where where he says stuff for Moby Dick for some reason. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no Wookiees. There was a dog lady, but no Wookiees. Yeah, I mean, Wookiees were kind of a TNG thing. It wasn't, like, original series didn't really have Wookiees. Fair enough. They hadn't invented them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And a troubling lack of Boba this Fett. Is, but other yeah, than this that. Yeah, this is just, like, the same joke three times. <laughs> well, three, well, but <laughs> jokes are better in threes, so that's why, I, that's you know. That's true. I mean, so, my, so... There are a lot of things I love about Star Trek. My favorite thing about Star Trek, and this is the button that we'll put on the episode, is when they do their version of two real things and a fake thing, mm, where they're listing, yes. where they're listing like three musicians or scientists, and they'll name two that we know, and then we'll make up somebody. So it's like, oh yeah, the, the symphonies of 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 Brahms, Mozart, and Fleet Florp, the Magnificent from Rocky Lawn <laughs> <Lawn> Five. <laughs> Ah, yes, the musical stylings of Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and Jerry Richardson. <laughs> what a good, what a good so, character we got Star to know. Trek. Star Trek. Uh, thanks, Jerry everybody. Richardson. Jerry Richardson. Go, go to the cool your heels in the brig, Jerry. <laughs> Hello, Jerry. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. This was exactly what we needed uh, on this here Friday evening. We hope that it was fun for you. Um, Andrew, thanks for chatting about this book with me. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for chatting about it with me and letting me drink Romulan ale and wear my my Star Trek you shirt. You look so cool in that shirt. I'm Thank you. I know. Um, yeah. If you have favorite Star Trek episodes that you want to tell us about, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at overduepod. 
our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Thanks to everybody who joined us in the chat. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. If you beam over there, you'll find links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. You can click those, buy them, and we get a cut and your local independent bookseller gets a cut and you get a book and everybody wins. My pause there was because we have Killing Time listed and I'm not sure. It well, just for links. One, well, for one, the bookshop link goes to a Blu-ray of the 2009 movie. For yeah. <laughs> okay. That was on Is purpose. Is that intentional? Okay, uh patreon.com slash overdue pod is where you can support us more directly the people in the chat who we've been interacting with during this episode were there because they support us on patreon uh you get access to bonus episodes early and our long read projects and our little discord which has been i think a nice supportive community during the you know these trying times i hate having to say that with three capital t's so often but yeah it's just where we are. It is. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's what I got. Um, this will be up on the main feed in a few, you know, a few weeks from our recording. So keep an eye out for what we're reading in July. That'll all be posted. It'll be up. We hope that you are uh, well and that you are able to enjoy summer wherever you are, uh, in some way, shape, or form. Um, that's it, Andrew. What are we All right, saying? everybody, uh, more, now more than ever, try to be happy. <laughs> live long and prosper. Oh, yeah, live long and prosper, too, I guess, yeah. That was a HeadGum Podcast.